If you have your Bibles before you, uh, looking at Ephesians chapter two, reading verses one to 10. Paul writes to the churches, and you are dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again to the Lord. Father, what a delight that we can come to you with such great confidence as our gracious heavenly Father who hears us in Jesus. We thank you for the words that we have just now read that if we ask anything in your name, you will do it so that the Father may be glorified. And so, Father, we pray to you that you'd speak to us now, that the word of God would become the living voice. We pray for that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead to now move amongst us like a waft of God, that you would stir in us, O Lord, deep, Longings for you. Make us aware of a living God. Oh, Lord, we pray that you alone might be the affection of our hearts. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, we pray, our rock and our only redeemer. For we ask these things in faith, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned to you that um, as, we, as we entered into Paul's great prayer, that majestic prayer from Ephesians 1, uh, that we would spend some time uh, mapping out that prayer and thinking about that prayer as it applies to us. And I am going to return to Paul's great prayer from chapter 1, but I will do so when we arrive at Paul's second great prayer at the close of Ephesians 3, and we're going to look at these two prayers together. And so today, we're going to move on to Ephesians chapter 2, as we read, and uh, I think that Ephesians 2 is one of the most important theological lenses of the entire New Testament. 
And if we thought that Ephesians 1 was weighty and demanding as far as an introduction goes, Paul starts writing his letter to these various churches around Ephesus and he just plunges into the deep end. He wastes no time in presenting to us these these vaulting uh, elements of the Christian life. If we thought that was weighty, then Paul in Ephesians 2 shows no relenting. He continues to take us higher and he continues to take us deeper into the life of faith and he doesn't seem altogether concerned whether anyone might be offended at these doctrines that fundamentally undercut and undermine our cherished sense of human freedom and ability. I am the master of my fate, wrote the Victorian poet. I am the captain of my soul. And so thinks most of the enlightened age that we live in, but the word of God thinks so very differently. And as Archbishop Cranmer writes in his sermon on the misery of humanity, the Holy Spirit, when he wrote the scriptures, is in nothing more diligent than to pull down the vain glory and the pride of man. And there's a significant part of all of us that treasures the idea that we can go where we want to go and we can do what we want to do. We are free agents and we have these godlike powers to determine our own destiny. But the scripture comes to tear all of that kind of thinking down. And St. Paul today is relentless in his purpose to make us know and to make us feel acutely that our dependence upon God for all things is sheer and it's absolute. In Ephesians 2, we see very important things. We see some very profound and solemn things, things that interpret the gospel for us, things that help us to understand what God's salvation is all about. And the first of these things that Paul drives home to us today very, very clearly is the truth of the spiritual ruin of these Ephesian people. And you'll notice how Paul describes their ruin today in no uncertain terms. You were dead in trespasses and in the sins in which, in which you once walked. Paul uses two synonymous terms to drive the point home. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, the voice of the Lord says to our first parents. You can eat of all these fruits, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And as the Lord said, you shall surely die. So Paul says to the Ephesians today, in your state of sin, you were surely dead. You weren't half dead. You weren't mostly dead. There's a big difference, right? Says Miracle Max between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still alive. All dead is all dead. All dead is the utter evaporation of anything that remotely resembles the state of life. <clears throat> and I'm sure a number of us in this room have been in the presence of a corpse at some point in our life. And no matter how hard we try 
to romanticize the corpse. No matter how hard we try to romanticize death, death and a corpse is a ghastly thing. And Lancelot can look at the Lady of Shalott as she drifts down the river, and Lancelot can stop beside that body, and he can muse a little space, and he can say she has a lovely face. But in the end, all of that loveliness will be utterly eroded by the power of the grave. Death devours, death <clears throat> obliterates, death rots, death defaces, death removes all of the motion and all of the beauty that life brings to us. And so Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, he says this, he says, endeavor to get the idea of a corpse. Think about the silent lump of clay a loathsome thing, brother of the worm and sister of corruption. And when you have done so, please understand that this is the metaphor employed in Paul's text to set forth the condition of your soul by nature. Just as the body is dead, incapable, unable, unfeeling, and soon to be corrupt and putrid, so are we if we are not brought to life by divine grace. Understand, writes Spurgeon, that the doctrine of Holy Scripture is that man by nature since the fall is dead. He is a corrupt and a ruined thing. In a spiritual sense, he is utterly and he is entirely dead. You see how Scripture confronts us you see how scripture challenges us because as most of us would readily admit, the average person that we walk past in the street seems so very much alive. And so we say to ourselves, I mean, I get fallen, I get corrupted, I get wounded, I even get rebellious. But come on, Paul, dead? Do you really mean dead? I mean, look at the poetry they write. Look at all the good that they do. Look at the humanitarian achievements. Look at the milk of human kindness flowing down the streets. Come on, Paul. Look at all their beautiful sculptures. Look at their paintings. Come on, Paul, have you not heard of the Renaissance, Paul? Of course he hadn't. The growth of their cities. I mean, Paul, look at that marvelous and great Babylon which they have built by their mighty power. Paul, are you sure that this is dead? None of it seems to me like the handiwork of a corpse. Those voices go on and the well-intentioned but misled church muddies the water by insisting that the reason the masses of people aren't filling our pews is because of a problem of communication. We're not speaking their idiom. We're not speaking their language. We're not clothing our message in the dress of what they find appealing. The problem is we're preventing them from hearing the message. But my brothers and sisters, while it's true that we must be all things to all men so that we may win some, while it's true that it's important to speak the gospel intelligibly, right? Paul says, I'd rather speak five words with my mind than a thousand words with an unknown tongue or a foreign tongue. Even if it's true that the fundamental problem 
or even if it's true, we have to speak intelligibly. The fundamental problem is not communication. The fundamental problem is that the spiritually dead do not want the message. They don't want to hear the message that God is God. And why? Because they are dead. And a corpse can want nothing. The natural person, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept them. Why? Because they are spiritual. And he is dead and natural. And so you begin to see the plight of the lost. They are unable to respond to the truth. They are unable to will themselves out of their predicament because there is no will in them to speak of. It is all death and rottenness. And there's a very unhelpful metaphor in the church that circulates around, and it's something like this. The spiritually lost are like those drowning at sea. They're flailing about in the water, wildly thrashing in an attempt to save themselves, calling out for something, and God, in his mercy, he comes. And he appears, and he offers him his lifeline. He casts his preserver, the gospel, out into the water, and then it's up for the man, or the woman, or the child to decide. And God waits for their response. He waits upon the strength and the vitality of the human decision. He waits to see if the struggling soul will finally condescend to just accept his offer of salvation. But you see, this is to ignore, and is to fundamentally ignore what Paul has to say about God's grace. You see, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You weren't struggling to stay afloat. There was no thrashing about for you. In fact, you weren't moving at all for you had drowned. You were at the bottom. No thought, no will, no desire for God, no nothing because dead means dead. You were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. And then notice how Paul makes the situation even more dire. Not only does Paul insist that we were dead towards God, but he insists that the natural born man and woman is subject to the power of Satan. Verse two, you followed the prince of the power of the air. You followed that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And at this point, we can start getting a little uncomfortable. Okay, Paul, I get spiritual death. But do you mean to tell me that every person outside of Christ, every person that is not born again by the Spirit of God is subject to the power of Satan? It's exactly what Paul says. They are bound, he says, to the service and to the will of the devil. And Paul is only repeating the words of his master. You remember what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders? Your father is who? Your father is the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The devil, says Jesus, animates the desires of the world. The devil shapes its fashions, its ideas, its expressions, it shapes its music, its values, its trends, 
its policies. Listen to what Paul says about this. The course of this world, he says in Ephesians 2, the course of the world is to follow the prince of the power of the air. Paul, we say, Paul, where is this world going? Paul, what is the course of this world? It moves, writes Paul, at the will of the devil. It follows the enemy of God. It is shaped by hatred of God's person and rejection of God's laws. Sometimes, folks, I think we've not even begun to think through adequately the biblical vision of the world. And it's no wonder that St. John says to us, my brothers and sisters, my children, do not love the world. Don't love the world and don't love the things in this world. And it's no wonder as Paul looks at the mission of the church in the world, he doesn't see it in terms of fighting human ideologies. He doesn't see it in terms of fighting human systems and human philosophies. In fact, he says we don't fight against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the cosmic powers of this present world, this present darkness. St. Paul, we say as we sit down with him, how would you define the characteristic of our world? And Paul says, I would call it this. I would call our world this present darkness. St. John, how would you think about our world? What would you say to us if we asked you what our world is like? And St. John would come to us and would say, we know that the whole world is what? It lies in the power of the evil one. You were dead. You belonged to the devil to do his will. And then to make matters far worse, Paul describes sinful humanity, humanity not only as dead and followers of the devil, but he says in verse 3 that by nature we were the children of wrath. In sin, Paul says, we had become the thing that God hates. His righteous image had been so defaced from us, dead in trespasses and sins, we had aroused the anger of God even when we tried to please him. I hate, he says, the Lord speaking now, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, says the Lord of hosts. It's something that we don't think about as often as we should, but the psalmist did. If only we knew, writes the psalmist, the power of your anger. If only we knew, O oh God, the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due your name. And my brothers and sisters today, we've not even begun to consider the power of God's wrath. We read in Revelation 16, we read about the seven bowls 
of God's wrath and that God one day will remember Babylon the great and one day he will make this city of man, this great earthly city to drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. You know, anger, anger can be endured and it can be dismissed when it's not well-founded. We can look at the fool spouting on the worksite and his baseless fury may be aggravating, but it's not terrifying. But what will happen when we face the justified wrath of the living God? The sinners in Zion we read in Isaiah, are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless, and they say, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? The flames, writes Jonathan Edwards, the flames are following the sinner. They are coming near and near every day. The fierceness of the wrath of God burns against him, ready to seize and to destroy the godless. And therefore today, Paul leaves us with this threefold vision of the world, not only dead, not only in league and animated by the power of Satan, but objects of the wrath of God. And so each one of us, there's not a one of us that didn't experience this. Each one of us were dead and we were bedeviled and we were doomed. And it's into this plight that Paul now introduces his gospel. And I love in verse four, the but. (laughs) But God, he says, and that I believe is the essence of the Lord's gospel to us. But God, in spite of all of this death, in spite of all the satanic allegiance, in spite of God's justified anger against each one of us, in spite of our inability to rescue ourselves, God has moved towards us in the richness of his mercy and kindness. You, says Paul, were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were drowned. You were at the bottom of the ocean, no aspirations for God no thought to save yourself, and in that state, God did not send you a lifeline. God did not cast you a preserver so that you could grasp it. No, God didn't do that. Paul says God dove into the water of sin and death just for you. And there at the bottom of all that wreck and all that ruin and all that hatefulness of corruption and shame, in pure mercy, he laid hold of your lifeless self and God took you up and up and up beyond all corruption and shame and sin and he breathed into you the life of his Holy Spirit because of the great love he had for you. God saved you, writes Paul, even when you were his enemy. And when you were dead and could do nothing for yourself, then God made you alive with Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, what a great debt we owe to the Lord today. What a great debt each of us owes to the Lord. It is by grace you have been saved. God chose you before the foundation of the world that you might belong to him. And when you are most Helpless, God 
chose you. And he could have chosen anybody. Paul says, like the rest of mankind, we were following these ways. Like the rest of mankind, we were doing these things. Like the rest of mankind, and God chose you. And what a great debt we all owe to the Lord today. And as we come and as we give ourselves today to these emblems of bread and wine, I invite you with me to give fresh thanks to the Lord. When we could not save ourselves, the Lord chose us and redeemed us through the power of his blood. And none of us will ever know the price that he paid. None of us will ever adequately fathom what happened that dark day on the cross, but we know that one day, as we stand before that great throne, and we see one who looks like a lamb, all that we will be able to do is to bow down and we will say, worthy is the lamb who is slain. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.